Greetings all my followers and soundtrack fans out there. Things are changing with my podcast. I've really gotten busy with a new job, with stress and where and when to podcast, as well as having time to do the podcast. Life gets in the way. I mean, changes go about in my life and it seems like I went from one uh, way of doing things and things have changed. I will continue to podcast but it will be shorter or even less frequent. My main podcast site, SoundtrackAlley.net, will change soon to SoundtrackAlley.wordpress.com. Money's tight, and where I'll be posting my podcast will be on Mixcloud. It's free, and lets me even go and do it as long as I want. It's unlimited time, and I know many of my devotees will follow me to Mixcloud and continue to listen. I just can't keep up my schedule for once a week and getting things done. Notes, finding things to talk about, having a co-host. It's all very difficult. Um, I apologize, and I will no longer be as frequent. But this has been an amazing ride and will continue uh, to keep up my passions for soundtrack music, and I'll continue to make some newer episodes. But uh, that's all for my personal side of things. I hope you can enjoy this episode that I've recorded. And enjoy this episode, and the next one may be a little while down the road. Thanks. Hello! I am Randy Andrews, and today I'll delve deeper into some of the more darker adventure scores from the 1980s. I'll discuss some different tidbits on the movies, and then go into playing some of the amazing score music from some of these films. Let the Dark Adventures Volume 2 begin. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Today I'll be going into some of the darker adventure scores from the 1980s. Let's get started with talking a little bit about Lethal Weapon from 1987. Originally, Mel Gibson and Bruce Willis were considered for each other's roles in Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Both movies were produced by Joel Silver with music by Michael Kamen. Willis was offered the role of Martin Riggs but turned it down and a year later he did Die Hard. Gibson was considered to play John McClane, along with his co-stars from The Expendables 3, Harrison Ford, Sylvester Stallone, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they all turned it down. Coincidentally, the script for Die Hard with a Vengeance was written as a Lethal Weapon sequel. Mel Gibson was only 30 when the movie was filmed, although his character Riggs is portrayed as being 38. This was the first movie to show a modern cell phone. It was a portable Radio Shack Model 17 
10.03 launched circa 1986, close to when the filming dates of the movie were. There was a running gag in the Lethal Weapon film series that is one, two, three false starts when Riggs and Marta, Marta can't decide whether to go one, two, three, then go, or one, two, three, and go on three. While the gag does not exist in this film, there is a one, two, three false start in this movie, and it happens when the uniformed cops are trying to prepare to sing Silent Night in a chorus and one of the cops keeps starting too soon. This was also the first collaboration between Richard Donner and Mel Gibson in a theater in the background. It's showing the movie Lost Boys, and the movie was written by Jeffrey Boehm, the uncredited second writer for the movie. Now, of course, there was the title drop in the movie. Murtaugh speaks the title of the film when he says to Riggs, I suppose we better register you as a lethal weapon. During pre-production, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover shadowed Los Angeles Police Department officers, and Richard Donner consulted the L.A. County Sheriff's Department to ensure an authentic portrayal of the police force. Now, Michael Kamen and Eric Clapton had worked together on the music for Edge of Darkness, and coincidentally, Mel Gibson starred in Edge of Darkness. And Mel Gibson references his famous scene in this movie in The Expendables 3 as he tells the people he's fighting to kill him. Expendables 3 also had Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas, who worked with Richard Donner and Joel Silver on Assassins. And Gibson also suggested and joked that his characters Martin Riggs and Jerry Fletcher from Conspiracy Theory, also directed by Donner, would be good as Expendables. Now, Michael Kamen, who had come in from completed work on Highlander, composed the score for Lethal Weapon. The guitar part of Riggs' theme is performed by Eric Clapton, and Kamen and Clapton had worked together on the music for the 1985 BBC series Edge of Darkness, the feature adaptation of which would later, by coincidence, star Mel Gibson. The saxophone part of Murtaugh's theme was performed by David Sanborn. The song Jingle, performed by Bobby Helms, is played during the film's opening credits. And Honeymoon Suite's song, Lethal Weapon, is played during the film's end credits without being credited. Now, for the cues that I'll play, I'll only play Amanda, Meet Your New Partner, Yard Fight, and Graveside. Michael Kamen does his chaotic best at the score and its subsequent sequels. I hope you enjoy it.
Next, let's get into discussing Mad Max from 1979. Now, George Miller raised the money for Mad Max by working as an emergency room doctor, which was really unusual. Uh, The film was shot in 12 weeks on a meager $350,000 budget in and around Melbourne. Mel Gibson didn't go to the audition for this film to read for a part. He actually went along with his sister who was auditioning. But because he had been in a bar fight the night before, his head looked like a black and blue pumpkin, which were his words. He was told he would come back and audition in three weeks' time because, and we need freaks. He did return in three weeks' time, wasn't recognized because his injuries had healed well, and was asked to read for the part. George Miller paid a truck driver $50 to run over the bike at the final scene. However, the truck driver didn't want to damage his rig. Thus, the crew had to install the shield painted to look like the front of the rig. Because he was relatively unknown in the U.S., trailers and previews didn't feature Mel Gibson, instead focusing on the car crashes and action scenes. Now, in 2015, an interview with Jeff Goldsmith podcast, George Miller said that it was not the intention when the script was written to set it in a post-apocalyptic world. This was done because they didn't have the money for extras and properly maintained buildings. In order to cover for this production value limitation, the title card was added to the beginning, explaining the the story was set after a world war. This also accounts for why there is generally more of an established society in this film than any of the sequels. The custom blower on the Pursuit special was purely cosmetic. It was belted up to a starter motor beneath or underneath the hood, and it did not do anything to the air intake valve. The filmmakers mixed crow noises with the seagull sounds to make one scene more ominous. Now, George Miller had wanted a gothic Bernard Herrmann type score and hired Brian May after hearing his work for Patrick back in 1978. Now, according to him, his interest while writing the film was a silent movie with sound. This is similar to what George Lucas had considered Star Wars to be, and it employed highly kinetic images reminiscent of Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, while the narrative itself was basic and simple. Miller believed that audiences would find his violent story more believable if set in a bleak, dystopian future. This was also the only film in the franchise where Max's Pursuit Special later named The Last of the V-8 Interceptors, survives at the end of the film. The car is destroyed in The Road Warrior when the toady tries to take the car's gas and then crashes twice in Mad Max Fury Road. The Interceptor does not appear in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Now, with the musical score being composed by Brian May, uh... Now, this isn't to be confused with the guitarist of the band Queen, but with this gothic score, there was little budget, and they had to go ahead and do it 
and it spent a lot of time on it. Now, according to Brian May, he said George was marvelous to work with, and he had a lot of ideas about what he wanted, although he wasn't a musician. The soundtrack album was released in 1980 by Varez Saraband. So today I'll be playing the main title, Foreboding on the Horizon, and Outtake Suite. Brian May does a great job keeping George Miller's vision and of the post-apocalyptic wasteland firmly in mind when composing the music for this film. I hope you enjoy this suite.
Next, I'd like to discuss the sequel to this film, which is The Road Warrior, which took place in 1981. Now, Mel Gibson had only 16 lines of dialogue in the entire film, and two of them were, I only came for the gasoline. Now, the dog used in the film is simply named Dog, and was obtained from a local dog pound and trained to perform in the film. However, because the sound of the engines upset him, and in one incident caused him to relieve himself in the car, he was fitted with special earplugs. After filming was complete, he was adopted by one of the camera operators. According to the trivia book Movie Mavericks by John Sandys, one of the more spectacular sons in the film was actually a serious accident. One of the motorcycle riding raiders hits a car, flies off the bike, smashes his leg against the car, and cartwheels through the air toward the camera. This was a real, genuine accident. The stuntman was supposed to just fly over the car without hitting it. But the nearly fatal accident looked so dramatic that it was kept in the movie. The stuntman broke his leg badly but survived. If you look at the stuntman's body frame by frame through his cartwheels, you can see that one of his legs is bending 
slightly unnaturally around the knee. Now, Max's dog was saved from being euthanized by the filmmakers, which is great. And one day he was, before he was being put to sleep, the members of the crew visited the shelter and paid cash for the film. He was um, picked up from several other dogs due to him picking up a rock off the ground and playing with it like a toy. And the crew members realized the dog could have a real presence on the film and had the potential to be trained. And so the movie ended up being the only uh, only film in which he appeared, unfortunately. Unusual for an action film, this shot or this was shot in sequence. Now the opening credits and the narration are performed in mono. The Dolby stereo system kicks in on the whoosh sound as the film fast forwards to the present. The first Australian film also to be mixed with Dolby's soundtrack. Now this is also George Miller's personal favorite of Mad Max, which is why he went ahead and did Mad Max Fury Road. The Japanese manga Fist of the North Star was heavily influenced by this movie. You can see the same setting, aesthetics, dresses, and looks for the characters. The similarities don't end there. In the first episode, the main character stumbles upon a fortified village inhabited by good people hassled by outlaws. Furthermore, the first villain of Fist of the North Star resembles the character Zeta in Mad Max 2, even called Zeta. Now, Brian May, who composed the score, returned to compose the score for the second one, but he didn't compose the music for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and was replaced by Maurice Jarre, which is still an outstanding score. The V-8 Interceptor received numerous changes between films, although only one occurs on screen. The smashing of the front during the opening chase and other modifications include the removal of the front bumper, the removal and subsequent installation of the two large barrels in the boot, and the passenger seat has all been removed and a new seat installed to the door for Max's dog, which is pretty awesome. Now, originally, this was going to be a conclusion, uh, having Max's fate never to be revealed. And George Miller, Terry Hayes, and Brian Kennedy had no intentions of making a third movie. However, George had planned to make a post-apocalyptic Lord of the Flies film about a tribe of children living in the wild who are found by an adult. When Miller suggested that Mad Max is the adult who finds the children, it became Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So today, uh, Brian will play some music from uh, this amazing score by Brian May. Uh, The cues I've chosen is the main title, the montage, first chase, vengeance of homunguous, and collision and finale. I hope you find these very post-apocalyptic, and I personally like them, so enjoy.
sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I hope you've enjoyed really delving into some of these very successful, but very dark and brooding films and that I wouldn't have gone into full detail on my show. The goal of this episode has really been to highlight the scoring of these movies and really show how impactful they really can be. So lastly today, I'm going to be discussing a little bit about Die Hard. Now, the Nakatomi Tower is actually the headquarters of the 20th Century Fox. That's kind of cool. The company changed its or charged itself rent for the use of the then unfinished building. The scene in which Gruber and McLean meet was inserted into the script after Alan Rickman, who played Gruber, was found to be proficient in mimicking American accents. The filmmakers had been looking for a way for the two characters to meet prior to the climax and capitalized on Rickman's talent. Much of the script was improvised due to constant screenplay tweaks that were made during the filming. Now in the original script, as in the original novel, the action took place over three days, but John McTiernan was inspired to have it take place over a single night like Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is kind of cool. This was the feature film and Hollywood debut of Alan Rickman, who had previously only appeared on stage on British television. He was 41, and as such, he was nervous about how his first Hollywood role would go over, but his outstanding success as Hans Gruber secured a lucrative career in American film. At the suggestion of McTiernan, Ludwig von Beethoven's Ode to Joy, which is the Ninth Symphony, is the musical theme of the terrorist. Hans Gruber, the terrorist leader, even hums it at one point in the film while he's on the elevator with Mr. Takagi. Takagi. I can never get those names right. Film composer Michael Kamen at first thought it was a sacrilege to use Beethoven in an action movie, telling McTiernan, I will make mincemeat out of Wagner or Strauss for you, but why Beethoven? McTiernan replied that Ode to Joy had been the theme of the ultra-violence in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, and Kamen then agreed. The scene where John McClane tries to smash the window with a chair in order to get the attention of Al Powell required multiple takes because the glass window was too strong to break from a single blow as depicted in the film. In fact, the glass window was so strong that Bruce Willis actually ended up breaking the chair before he broke the window. And Willis and the crew can be seen having a laugh over this in a vintage making of documentary. Now the music being played, of course, in the beginning of the film is the first movement of Johann Sebastian Bach's third Brandenburg Concerto. And also, Bruce Willis considered this role to be his favorite as John McClane. Now, John McTiernan is known to have certain earmarks in certain films, such as a teddy bear. McLean had a teddy bear for his family. The same bear is seen at the end of The Hunt for Red October. Now, Hans Gruber's fall 
was also filmed at 300 frames per second, which is also really interesting. Now here's something many don't know. The music cue when Powell shoots Carl at the end of the film was actually an unused track from James Horner's Academy Award-nominated score for Aliens. Specifically, the music was originally intended for a scene near the end of the film in which Ripley battles with the alien queen on board the Solico. Instead, an earlier music cue was reused, leaving the cue available for this film. A second music cue scored by John Scott for the film Man on Fire was also used. The music can be heard when John and Holly meet Powell at the end of the movie. Now, Michael Kamen is very prolific in the 1980s and 1990s, and to bring out the adventure, action, and suspense that this movie brought to the table. The main theme from the finale of Beethoven's Ninth is featured prominently in Michael Kamen's score throughout the film, and in with like a lead motif for Gruber and the terrorists. And then there are thematic variations of Singing in the Rain and a theme for the character Theo. <laughs> McTiernan said that he incorporated those themes into the film's soundtrack as an homage to Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Based on his score around thematic variations on well-known pieces is the concept that came in previously used in Brazil. And Box Brandenburg is playing during the party sequence near the film's beginning. The film's final four minutes were tracked with music from two other 20th Century Fox features. These are temporary tracks, and the music can be heard when McLean and Powell see each other for the first time, and is from John Scott's score for Man on Fire. When Carl appears with his rifle, McTiernan decided that he did not like Cayman's produced music for the scene and used, chose to use a piece of the temporary score that the production had purchased. That part was from Aliens. And similar to Aliens, the score by Michael Cayman was heavily edited with music samples looped over and over and cues added to scenes. The most notable examples is the brass blast heard when John slams his chair to the window as he confronts Marco. Then Heinrich appears and he kills him, and later when Hans Gruber falls to his death. What I'd like to present is some very action-based cues to amp up the end of this episode another a notch and let it fall to a soaring climax for the pieces I've chosen. First, I'd like to play the main title, then Terrorist Entrance, Going After John, the battle, freeing the hostages, and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony excerpt, and lastly, the source music of Walking in a Winter Wonderland by Michael Kamen. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can find his work at xanderscores.com. Find me on Facebook, Twitter at Soundtrack Alley, Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Podcast. At Google Podcast. If you want to email me, do so at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. So until next time, happy listening.
Grosse 
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com.